Hey everybody, welcome to the Human Source Codex, the podcast where we delve deep into the mysteries of life and reveal the hidden wisdom that lies within us all. Join me, I'm Kelly Ray, as we explore the most controversial topics and uncover the truths that lie at the heart of our existence. From ancient spiritual practices to cutting edge scientific discoveries, we leave no stone unturned in our quest to expand our minds and open our hearts to the infinite possibilities that surround us. So sit back and relax and get ready to uh, come on the journey with us and unlock the secrets of the Human Source Codex. So today, I'm really excited about today because um, our guest today, his name is Matt Teb. And he's a high-performance mindset coach, but Matt also has like these other amazing abilities and has had the most amazing experiences with his life, like working with, with tigers. And, you know, I, I love this because I share the animal behaviour uh, love as well. So uh, Matt has a love and a passion for psychology and behaviour. Using his knowledge, awareness, and experience in this area, Matt constructs strategies that, while often simple, are exactly what his clients need in order to transform their lives. Matt spent 17 years working as an animal behaviorist, specializing in the training and conditioning of full contact tigers before making the move to working with people. Matt coaches young athletes as well as men and women who are looking to transform their lives so that they can achieve their dreams. A speaker, a content creator, and a trained NLP practitioner, Matt has a mission to inspire others to reconnect with their authentic self and consequently help them to lead a life of freedom unaffected by external circumstances. Matt's principal goal is to empower others to understand their own mind and use simple yet effective strategies to change them in order to become a success in whatever they set out to achieve. So welcome, Matt. I'm so excited to have you on, the, on my podcast today. It's a pleasure to have you here. So uh, tigers, let's <laughs> dive straight on into the juicy stuff like Tell me about the tigers. Tell me about working with tigers and uh, your life, as I believe it's 17 years of your life with, with tigers. Yeah. Well, hi. Thanks so much for having me, Kelly. It's awesome to, to be here and uh, to, you know, to, to sit in, in this space with you and, and share uh, some of my stories and what my, my experiences. It's um, definitely <laughs> 17 years was a amazing career absolutely incredible and there's so much uh, so much that I've learned uh, yeah so I, I started my career uh, as a, a zookeeper at the, the tender age of, of 16 in a very small little wildlife park and uh, I was you know um, in Victoria at the time studying my VCE and I always wanted to work with animals um, initially it was I wanted to become a vet uh, that, that was my goal I wanted to be a vet um, you know, I had this, this big desire to, to make a difference, to, to help and to change the world in my own little way. And veterinary school was, was the path, uh, at least I thought it was at least. And um, there was a huge influence from my, my grandma. She used to, um, you know, she, she was connected with a lot of vets in Victoria and would always send me photos and letters as, as a child. So 
I was destined on that career for a little while until I, I started working at a wildlife park on weekends. Um, so, you know, I do year 12, sorry, year 11. And, um, you know, I was, I was studying hard, but then I was like, okay, it's time to work. So I'd work on weekends at a wildlife park. And I really fell in love with the fact that I could build relationships with animals. And um, so that, that led me into, into the zoo world. Um, so I started um, full-time into the zoo world at Melbourne Zoo uh, when, I was, when I was 18 years of age. Uh, so I was a young pup and, um, you know, I was really, really fortunate to get a, a traineeship working with large carnivores and large primates. So I got to work with uh, Sumatran tigers and gorillas, which was incredible. Um, wow. So I finished my traineeship there and I uh, was fortunate enough to get an opportunity here at Australia Zoo on the Sunshine Coast. And um, yeah, I, I, I'd worked there up until just recently and um, yeah, it was an incredible career. So I'm happy to yeah to answer any questions you have. I'm, I'm sure there's a lot. <laughs> well, as, as mentioned before, I love these things to be like discussional too as well as, you know, and of yeah. course questions come into it. Um, I, I, I love the fact that uh, you potentially wanted to start out as a vet and mm. uh and and so what made you change from wanting to be a vet into working with primates and and carnivals yeah so i was i was 16 at the time and uh i had done my workplace work placement through um when i was in, in year 10 and i did that at a, a vet clinic and um, i found it fascinating um obviously the surgical process and helping you know, animals recover from illness and injury. And, and I really in, enjoyed that uh, until my last day when um, I shadowed a vet and we spent the entire day um, euthanizing animals. And I was like, oh, okay, this is, this is a bit tough to handle. So at the time, um, at the time I sort of questioned myself is, you know, understanding that when you work with animals, their lifespan is, is you know, much different to ours. And Pets obviously uh, age and age relatively quickly in, uh, in terms of things. So um, death is a part of life. It's, it's, it's a part of what we do. But I really felt that um, at that age that I didn't want to spend the majority of my day surrounded by death. I didn't want to spend a lot of my day having to put animals down. I wanted to make a greater difference. Uh, and in terms, of, um, uh, in terms of that, it was more I'd started working at the wildlife park at the same time. So... Yes. I'd gone from, from one environment where I was enjoying myself and, and saw a great potential, but also was faced with, you know, death and trauma and sadness from, from people. And um, at the time, I, I just thought I didn't want to surround myself with this. I wanted to, to go down the other route. Um, I, I got to see the joy and the love and the kindness. And when I was working with animals in, in the wildlife park, uh, I would see that the people that I was working with, um, the staff, but then the patrons that were visiting was just complete happiness. Every time they saw an animal, they saw a koala, they saw a dingo, they saw an eagle, um, their faces just light up. Um, and especially tourists and being able to educate them and, and, and give them a taste of Australia. And that was, for me, what really drove me in that direction. Um, so much so that I'd actually uh, got into La Trobe University to study veterinary science and um, I deferred. And I ended up ended up uh, getting my job at Melbourne Zoo at the time. So it was sort of like I felt like then it was fate. I'm like, okay, well, you know, I've made these decisions, but I've also got this amazing opportunity to to work at Melbourne Zoo as a trainee. And essentially, if I went to university, I would have to then 
spend, you know, four, five, six years studying to almost get into the same position that I'm in now. Um, so I went down the practical training route and really threw myself into learning and uh, yeah, it paid off. Very cool. Very cool. It's really interesting because, you know, like my early years too, uh, reflective of yours is that I wanted to be a vet as well when I grew up, you know, because I loved animals and especially horses. And having a similar experience, you know, I went and did work experience from the age of, um, I started working in a veterinary hospital as 12. And it was that, the euthanization of, you know, puppies and, mm. and cats or animals that to me had a value in life, but yet they were just discarded as such. That it's almost like um, there wasn't really much afterthought of those particular beings. And, and, you know, I still went on and I became a vet nurse instead of a veterinarian and, contributed to my love of animals and then eventually went on to actually own a veterinary hospital but um, specifically around horses and I really focused on wellness as opposed mm. to in like general practice inside of that like the rehabilitation of animals uh, especially horses and reproduction so um, and then transferring for the last 17 years of my life into becoming a human behaviorist as well as an animal behaviorist too, I got the opportunity to really see and be inside of the veterinary industry. And it has one of the highest percentages of suicide yes. because of that reason. And so I found that really fascinating uh, as a human behaviorist today is like working with those particular things. And it does come down to that that one thing is that you, you have an animal that has a relatively good quality of life left in it, but yet mm. there isn't a need or a want for it. So it is then euthanized or put down yeah. or destroyed or whatever you want to call it. So having to, having to work with that every day can take its toll on humans. And the reason I'm, I'm popping this in here is because uh, like myself, yourself is now working as as a human behaviorist yes. so making that transition from what we've actually learned from animals is absolutely fascinating because really the animal mind like within inside of us is our emotional body our emotional brain our limbic system yep. that drives all of those particular behaviors that we get to observe and experience from animals and so i'm just going to dive straight on into the tigers and, sure. the, and the predators because as, as we are animals first, um, human, human mammalians, uh, we tend to actually shy away from exhibiting our predator behaviour. So what did you learn from the tigers where you're working with all the predators or large cats that you can actually see across correlation in human behaviour today with the people that you work with? Yeah, great question. Um, I think the like the biggest thing with with a, a big cat is the fact that they are one hundred percent authentically themselves. Like they 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 know their nature. They they accept it. They own it. They don't even to be honest. They don't even think about it. They just do. They just be. They just live. They just exist as they are. And um, but working with them in such a close fashion because yeah, we we would 
we would hand hand raise them from birth. So we would breed the cats, uh, and then we would have a, a kind of co-parenting role for a little while uh, with mum. Uh, but then what we would do is we'd actually remove the the cubs from mum uh, and then be with them for 24 hours a day for the first six months of their life. So it was a very intensive process. So we developed a very strong relationship and a very strong bond with them. Uh, but in that bond, they became extremely comfortable with us, but at any given moment, they would or could exhibit their natural instincts. So they were never classified as tame. Uh, that's one, one of the biggest questions we'd always get is, are they tame? And no, they, they're not. Um, but what, what I found was they're always thinking ahead. And that was quite surprising to me because I thought, okay, well, an animal that is going to act at its base instinct is typically going to be reactionary. Um, you know, think they're going to react to their environment. They see something, they, they triggers an instinct, they then do it. But what I found was not the opposite, but the fact that tigers would definitely react to their surroundings, but they would always react to the, their, their natural instinct. But then I'd also see times where they would stop and think and plan. And that was really, really interesting. You could see them, you could see them trying to figure something out and then try multiple different angles to get a result. Uh, so I think like in relation to, to humans is I, I feel that you know, most of the people I work with currently are sports people. So I uh, work with particularly a lot of kids uh, when it comes to, to cricket. Uh, so I do a lot of work with kids in cricket and obviously um, do, do some men's work in, in non-lying community as well. So there's obviously a huge difference between working with kids and, and men. Sometimes there's not, but <laughs> um, I think like relative to, to tigers, it's the fact that I feel that we don't actually act enough in our authentic selves. We're too busy trying to, we're too busy trying to, to please others or, or, or create a, um, a persona or an identity that we think are going to please others instead of actually just acting as who we are, um, accepting who we are and living to that point where, you know, we may not be perfect in the terms of perfection, but we're happy because we show up as ourselves. And the people that I've worked with that do that are among the most happiest and success successful people that I've ever met is because they're not worrying about their external environment. They're not just reacting to it, but they're creating a plan that, that they're understanding who they are as, as a person and they're accepting that and they go through their life um, looking for, for opportunities. So, you know, almost hunting, you know, looking for opportunities, uh, hunting the way that a tiger would. And it's, it's a metaphor that I always I use with myself is like, well, you know, what am I hunting today? What am I actually going out to achieve? Instead of just sitting back, letting life happen to me, like what am I going out there and I'm looking for and what am I going to achieve today? And um, I feel like from a subconscious level, tigers will do the same thing. That's really cool because we, from what you've just said there, um, we see that we are human, but yet we still have a predatory nature within us, right? So that, that comes from, from us having a need to actually, you know, self-preservate, right, to preserve ourselves. So we will go hunting. And, and now, like today, the words have actually changed to you know sales and marketing mm. and 
And to me, that is no different. It's still hunting. We're hunting for food in a different form. So, yes. you know, at, at its base level, that's predatory. But again, we have these belief systems that we can't use the word to be predatory or narcissistic in that to actually obtain something or to strategize to obtain, obtain something. It's considered as, you know, um, undesirable as such. But yet, it, in our authentic form, we still need to act like a tiger or a lion or, or a predatory cat to be able to survive, but yet it's actually frowned upon. So we come across these belief systems or what I call projected or injected subordinations of how we have to act or, or be in life. And I love the fact that you say that the cats are just purely authentic in who they are. They just live their life as they are. And so, you know, us as humans, why do why are we actually having to change relative to fit society in that form? This is what I find interesting. But yet we will we will honor a lion to be a lion or a tiger to be a tiger in its without that that particular judgment on them. Right? Oh yeah, it's what cats do. They mm. hunt. But hang on a minute, humans don't not meant to hunt. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And I think we we can be so far removed from that element of our nature that, you know, we we forget that, you know, we are, a, you know, from a from a, a biological perspective, we're an animal. We're an advanced species with a big brain, but we're still a mammal. And we have so many, you know, like so I'll give you an example. Um tigers in one of the major ways in which they communicate is through scent marking um, and be not to identify scent. So they don't, they do have a, they do have a, a language, so to speak, in terms of the way they would communicate verbally. So they have around 26 different type of calls um, that, that they can, which means something different. So they can identify that through distance. So their, their calls can last a couple of kilometers um, so they can hear them and they know what they mean. So they do have a, a language, so to speak, but they also communicate through scent marking. and mm -hmm. They have a very unique organ called a Jacobson's organ, uh, which is in the roof of their mouth. So when a tiger, because they have such a vast territory, when a tiger has um, need to sort of roam their territory to scent mark, they will mark their territory first and foremost to let others know, hey, this is mine, back away. You know, they're a solitary species, so obviously unlike us, they're not as social. Uh, but they, they mark the territory um, to let others know, stay away. But if it's a female who is an estrus and is ready to breed, then the males would be able to identify that through their scent. Um, so when, when they're, they're processing that scent, they lift their lips up, stick their tongue out. It's called a Fleming response. And um, interestingly, humans have a Jacobson's organ as well. Uh, we just don't use it. So We use it, we use it in yoga. Well, we, do, well, like, yeah. we call it tiger breath. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. and it's, it's, a, it's fascinating. And, um, you know, I definitely want to be spending more and more time sort of diving into research around that in itself because obviously i've seen it firsthand at how potent it is for tigers in their communication and how much they can pick up um little subtle changes like we, we they will pick up the, the changes in a female tiger before she comes into estrus through her scent before any behavioral markers occur um, which I, I feel is fascinating because as as behaviorists as animal behaviorists we would spend a lot of our time trying to perfect 
the 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 I to sorry trying to perfect the um, markers like identifying the markers for when a female tiger was coming into estrus because then we could we could look at putting her with the male so we could breed, but the males would just tell us we we would know within 12 hours, whether a female is coming in at estrus based on the male's behavior, not hers, which I found was, was absolutely fascinating. So you just, yeah, we got really, really good at identifying. I'm going to throw throw something in here. Like, like, so you want to perfect this and formulate this so that you can, you can do what with it, with the females? So we we could, we could put the males to breed. Yeah. I I understand that, but I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be funny here. It's like, So in you to understand this in terms of human behavior, like in, in that oh. <laughs> response, like picking up yeah. when females well, on. Yeah, I, I, was go- I was going somewhere there. I just got excited <laughs> about, about talking about it. Um, but yeah, like, but, but again, like it's yeah, in terms of like nonverbal communication, whether mm-hmm. we actually realize whether it be in courting or whether it be in, uh, in a business sense of, of you know, and that's one thing, obviously, like, you know, with NLP, we talk about mirroring and, and, you know, looking at how you're behaving around someone from a nonverbal perspective. Uh, but scent has such a powerful part to play in that as well. Yet I don't think we understand maybe what's consciously going on as humans when we smell something nice, for example, a nice cologne or a nice perfume. Um, whereas in a tiger, it just triggers an instinct and they act, they do it without thinking. So, you know, if you're out, just say you're a single person and you're out at a, at a bar or you're somewhere and you smell someone really nice, you might think to yourself, oh, wow, that's a beautiful scent. But how many times are you going to walk up to somebody and say, wow, you smell amazing. Hi, I'm Matt. You know what I mean? <laughs> like most people, most people don't go that they'll recognize it. Oh, that smells nice. And something about that scent has triggered a level of attraction, but do I actually follow through on it? Do I go and introduce myself? Do I go and say hello? You know, whereas a tiger will just do it. They'll walk up and say, hey, yeah. how are you? You know? <laughs> that that reminds me of a time, you know, I lived in Mexico for a little bit and um, the Mexicans are renowned for being very authentic in their behaviour too as well. And, and one of my beautiful friends over there, Nacho, uh, he said to me, because I'm being single, he said to me, Kelly, when you get a man, make sure you smell him first. You make sure you go and smell him first and make sure he smell beautiful and smell the right smell. And I was like, Nacho, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? And he goes, you know, you know, that got to have the right smell. If the smell's no good, no good, no good, no good, you know. And, and it just reminded me of you actually saying that in that form. And uh so there is a pheromone component that then steps into play relative to our sensory components that would would say, um, you know, open the females up to being receptive. And when I was in Africa actually researching um, predator behaviour, I had the opportunity to actually watch that occur with the lions and how that they the lion and the lioness would disappear off, you know, away from the pride. And for 24 to 42 hours, that's all they would do was shag, right? Yeah. Completely like every five minutes. It was hmm. just non-stop. And it was almost like uh, in, in research when you're actually just observing and sitting there and taking data, it become, you know, almost boring to actually yeah. observe because it was 
very much the same sort of thing. The lion would actually stand up and he would lift his nose up and and do this Fleming that you were talk, you're talking about. And then the, the lioness would come around in a U shape and prepare herself and they would go, go ahead with the mating process. And then she would roll over onto her back and put her arms in the air and say, thank you very much. And he would roar and then they'd go lay down for five minutes. And this was a consistent thing for 24, 48 hours. And then once that was done, she go, they go back to the pride to do that. And observing, observing the lionesses that were ready to receive, you know, I felt sorry for the, the lions actually because there's less lions to lionesses. And so mm. there's, a, there's a bit of work there. You say they get a workout <laughs> in, that form, in that format. And that's the difference, obviously, with, with a, a lion, obviously, their social structure. They are such a social cat, which, you know, I find fascinating because the majority of cats are solitary. So, um, you know, tigers are quite different, you know, but they are solitary. So when, when a male and a female come together, uh, that they, the copulation process is anywhere up to seven days. Um, but it's exactly the same as what you've, you've experienced with, with the lion. So when, whenever we uh, would breed our, our cats at the zoo, we would literally sit there and watch them for the entire day. So, and, and it would be, Anywhere between, we would record in a 10-hour period of time, anywhere between sort of 35 and 70 matings. Uh, you know, so it's it's consistent. Um, and obviously, it's a very short process, uh, you know, 5 to, to, to 10 seconds, maybe 15 for a really long one. But, you know, with cats, they're induced ovulators, so, so they need the active penetration to ovulate. So... You know, it's it's really fascinating to to watch. You know, isn't it, to watch isn't, isn't it interesting? You know, coming back to like human behavior and being authentic is that it is also acceptable for both of us to actually observe. You know, cats breeding or having sex in some form, but uh, we could say it is. You know, tiger pornography or lion pornography in a in a format. But yet yeah. our minds are scientifically, you know, we put that that label upon it that we're, we're doing science, scientific research here and we're ob observing with observation. So this is this is really um, curious to me when we when we step into the, the human domain of observing uh, breeding or observing sex, like it does have a connotation or a, you know, like a, a secrecy component to it, which I believe actually contributes to a lot of our human less desirable behaviours that we, we get to experience or we get to observe or as consultants we have to integrate, right? Mm. So we come back to the, to the word uh, where we first started here is that the big cats are authentically able to be themselves, right? And yeah. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna, you know, like bring this into humans. We, you work in there. We want people to actually live their best lives to be authentically who they are. Does that include like full nature, or is it actually just a component of what we're, our expectations are to be as a human or a person? Because yeah. for me, like, full authenticity is being full authentic 
in in not wanting to suppress or actually repress any form of self. Yeah, and I think that that's a that's a big thing to identify is I think firstly for people to to identify what what is you know authentic to them because as as humans yes we I think we have we all have a drive we all have a physical drive um, you know but we, we're all emotional beings you know so we all have we all have things that 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 drive and motivate motivate us whether it be you know um, you know fear or, or pleasure but that I think there's also a range and a scale to to how that shows up in each individual. So, for example, something I grew up in a very, well, I wouldn't say a strict Christian home. Um, my mum was incredibly open as, as a Christian woman. Um, but I grew up around religion. So, you know, going to church a lot, um, you were told, you know, you can't, you can't do this. You can't, you know, have sex before marriage. You can't, you know, you can't do drugs. You can't get a tattoo. You can't, you know, so... You're told you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't, you can't your whole life. Um, yet when instincts kick in or feelings kick in, you're like, wow, you know, like as a young 16-year-old, you're full of testosterone. It's it's one of those things. It's like to shame people for acting how their body wants them to act or acting how they feel is natural to them, to me, I think is quite dangerous. And, you know, the, the, I think the draw, there is a line um, to a degree because, you know, there, there's obviously, there's, there's things that happen in, in the animal kingdom just as there does in humanity where maybe something doesn't go right and someone's brain chemistry may not be 100% um, considered normal. So therefore their innate actions may be to cause harm to others and therefore is it saying for them, to act on their natural instincts is that right well to them it may be but to society it's not you know going around causing harm to others may not necessarily be the right thing so i think there does need to be a level where we can look at what's acceptable but what's also natural yeah exactly so that we enter into the paradox uh the place of paradox here of like what is the true essence of this of being authentic really and we, we look at how we've actually been conditioned through belief systems or religion in some form is the basis of our shames and guilts. And cats don't follow religion or, no. You know, no. But they do follow the laws of nature and they, they do have some uh, constructs that they do operate within side of their their own sort of species system, and this one of the things that I observed with um, with the lions in Kenya was that that the prides are set if you're you know like the um, the marsh pride, and then you have like the laptop pride or something. Then there isn't you can't go and have an affair with with you know your next door neighbor there so there, there still is some components of that there um or if you if you get kicked out of that pride then you go and start your own pride because you won't be accepted into another pride unless you actually kill someone inside of that and so you know there still is laws relative to nature in terms of species and how they do have the operating systems to i believe to contribute to the evolution of those species so that there isn't 
a you know crossbreeding component that creates you know lines that are munted or have you know problems etc and then contributing to uh you know the demise of of the ecosystem as such so i there is universal constructs that do govern all species but it's understanding that they're universal in nature they're not theological in projection of how we're actually considered or meant to live our lives and when we have a deeper understanding of what is actually coming at play inside of us as a human we're coming from that instinctive or impulsive uh, reactionary component from the limbic system and we learn to have governance over that because we as a species have a different or a high level of consciousness with a bigger brain and we have access to being able to objectify or to strategically plan a lot more than these animals do because of our prefrontal cortex. So that that I think um, brings in the, the difference between authenticity of us delineating ourselves from being a like similar to a tiger or a lion or an animal and that we do have a a high level of consciousness relative to our cortex, our cortical brain. So, but one of the things when we met, I mentioned to you, which I found fascinating, which blew scientists out of the water, is that uh, I observed lionesses, a lioness actually strategically planning to actually enter into a opposing pride. And so the, the things that she had to uh, set a strategy for forward plan and objectify actually was fascinating to me you know uh, and she broke all of the laws and all of the rules of what nature had depicted upon how lions should be so I was fascinated with the fact that it was like okay is this an evolutionary component that these lions are starting to actually develop a prefrontal cortex and able to objectify plan and strategize moving forward as us as humans can do or is this just a one-off thing and then speaking with my guide that I was he goes no 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 we see this quite regularly you know and so there is there is components within these uh predators to do exactly that and my question to you is that do you believe that that's an intrinsic component that is actually uh inside of a predator to to have that that aspect and we have it do we have it within ourselves too as well and we have kind of circumvented that um in looking looking at you know we need to hunt Hmm. yeah look it's um it is fascinating i remember when when you had told me that story I, i just kept smiling because i just it's fascinating and it is super exciting to hear uh, that 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 is happening, you know, in a uh, wild context, you know, because um, you, you see that obviously uh, there is there are differences between some behaviours in say zoological facilities under human care versus say in the wild. Because in the wild, you know, the the consequences are real. The you know, so in 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 zoos, what we see is 
you know, if we see some behavioural shifts or changes with animals, we monitor them. We are watching them all of the time. We can then intervene if we need to. So we, you know, we, we would see similar, um, similar situations occur with, say, two young females, um, with, with tigers. You know, they're, they're completely solitary animals. Uh, yet, because of the nature of how we worked with them in a full contact facility, we would have them together for some time until they started to mature. And then once they started mature, we would then separate because that's what would naturally happen. Um, but we would see one female, for example, start to test the other and then start to, to, to assert more dominance where you wouldn't think that would never happen. Um, you think they'd just start to fight, which is normally what would happen. But we would see one female start to make calculated decisions to try and catch out the other female unawares, which is really interesting, just very, very intelligent animals. And, you know, but in the wild, if that was to happen, um, there is no intervention. So, you know, the, the, the concept, you would then argue, well, does this tiger, well, the question I would ask is, does this tiger understand what those consequences are going to be? So if she then decides she's going to take these calculated risks and, try to have a, 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 you know, attack her sister when she's not looking or try to take her territory and drive her out, does she understand that if that goes wrong, she could die? Um, so, and that's a question that fascinates me is, is what is the capacity of their thinking? Do they literally just act according to what their instincts tell them or are they planning? And I, I truly think that they, they do have an understanding of consequence. Um, and so the, the example that you give with the, with the lion is with her basically planning and plotting her infiltration into this pride, like she at some point has thought, what do I do if this goes wrong? And, and you know, so I think with, with humans is we, we have that amazing capacity to, to think of the future and, and, you know, it can be, a blessing it can be a curse at times for some people we have we have we have that capacity to create scenarios and to rationalize things and i think a lot of a lot of people will argue that the animals have no ability to rationalize things they have no ability to think of the future they only think about here and now but i've definitely seen in the animal kingdom and the animals i've worked with that they can definitely think about what's happening in the future whether it's to the level that we we do i don't think so but but definitely they can see a couple of steps ahead and they can identify consequences and make decisions based on potential, not just what happens. Um, so I think, you know, like the comparison there is, is you know, as, as species, and as you said, I agree that we are predatory species in a lot of ways. We, we share those same sort of values. I just think that we've got to a point where we can think about them in such a greater level that, um, that we, we can identify the best path to take forward. Um, yeah, like I, I'm I'm 100% fascinated by what our potential is in, in these areas. Well, it, it does. It fascinated me, and I keep coming back to this lioness because she had cubs, and it's just a no-no, you know, for a lioness <laughs> to take cubs into another pride. And she had three cubs, and she just, you know, she had a strategy and, and again, coming back to, I love your question of like, did she think about this before she actually started her process? I believe so. In watching and observing her for three weeks, actually make plans on how she was actually going to keep her, A, 
getting to the pride was the first, you know, that's her objective, that's her goal. But then the second part was getting into the pride with the three cubs and having them still be alive. Which is arguably the biggest challenge. Yes, yeah. And so watching her strategically, you know, like place these cubs and and put them in places and gradually bring them closer, you know, to the to the lion that was governing the pride, because generally they just kill them because it's actually cubs by another lion. They know it. Yeah. Um, it was fascinating to watch her do what she did in that to make a plan, strategize, and then to action these particular things and then make the discernment in every moment whether that was actually working or not, whether she had to go back a step or come forward a step or sidestep or go in the back door or through the rooftop, right? She yeah. did all of those things and eventually she, she entered that pride with those cubs and still to today, I check in, they are still actively alive and inside of that, right? So it comes back to um, where is it hereditary traits that they can access in the field, like the morphogenic energy field, the morphic field. I don't know if you're familiar with Rupert Sheldrake's work of um, we we look at, you know, like what drives an animal's behaviour, just say like a, as soon as it's born to be able to get up and nuzzle and know where to go to a teeth. Like how does it know that? And how does it know, you know, if it's a, a prey animal to be up on its feet in, in 20 minutes, you know, so that it can run? How does it know that it's not actually trained in any yeah. form? It's like we as humans take, you know, three to five years to get on our feet and learn how to run. So we have to be conditioned or trained or taught that, those particular things. So is, is there hereditary traits that are passed down through these animals that, that they, and the same with us, that are ingrained within their instincts to be able to act in a certain way? And coming back to, because I'm fascinated with the thing when we first started this conversation is that you mentioned that the, the cubs are actually taken and they're placed with you guys for 24 hours. So therefore desensitized from uh, their mothers and the potential of what we would call true nature. Mm-hmm. And, but yet you've mentioned a fair few times here that they still act on those particular instincts that are available to them, even though there has been an element of human uh, desensitization for them to become, let's say, like tame or, or um, what would be, you know, domesticated in some form. But this is where I'm going to lead into because I know that you actually had a little lion or a tiger actually incident that occurred. So the instincts to actually uh, become predatory and attack are still there, even though they have in some form been desensitized. So do you want to share uh, your experience about uh, your experience with the tiger? Yeah. So um, like for for the first part, I definitely believe from a hereditary perspective that there are, there are certain things, not just passed down family lines, but also subspecies. So looking at, um, so for example, we had uh, Sumatran tigers and Bengal tigers at the zoo, which were both hand-raised. And 
the behavioral differences between subspecies were quite evident. So, you know, Sumatran tigers, very highly strung, um, intense, but a lot moodier than <laughs> other subspecies. So they're, they're like, they're full on there. And, you know, we, we had at that stage, we had, um, we had 12 of them, you know, so 12 Sumatran tigers. So, um, yeah. So you look back at, at where they're from, you know, the, the, the founding bloodline that we had, uh, had actually come from Sumatra. So they had uh, a wild tiger was caught in a, a poacher's snare, uh, was injured and had to then be rehabilitated in a zoo. Uh, the Sumatran government deemed that that particular tiger was unfit to be released in the wild. So it became a breeding female to sustain the, the captive breeding population. So we got second generation cubs from a wild tiger, which is unheard of. Um, so, but all of those offspring had very similar traits to their mother and their aunties and their uncle and their grandmother. Uh, whereas they were slightly different to the other Sumatran tigers we had that yes, were still highly strung and full on, but this, the mannerisms and the behaviors that were shared from the founding bloodline was slightly different to the other one. So I, I believe that definitely there's, there's behaviors and even who knows, like, you know, um, experiences passed down through through dna um which is fascinating and i yeah i don't know of too many studies in the animal world being done on that uh but it's definitely something worth investigating um well that's and, something that we would do quite regularly with horses you know like yeah. in terms of the hereditary hereditary traits and then um looking at particular particular dna trying to you know create the perfect horse or the athlete as such yeah. right yeah. yeah, yeah. It's like uh, it's like the movie Gattaca, just you know, <laughs> creating the perfect species. Uh, but yeah, so and then um, you know, from from there, I think looking at there's always what was always something that was on my mind because yes, the the the, the removing of cubs from mum is controversial, and that's something that we had to navigate with care. Uh, obviously, there's there's people out there that don't believe that that's the right thing to do. Um, our argument was always, well, in order to give these animals, which are under human care in a zoological facility, so first and foremost, they're not in the wild. They never will be. So they could be stuck in a cage for 20 years or they could have close personal relationships with their keepers. They can get to go on walks. They could get to play in the water. They could get to swim around. They can get to have an incredible existence within captivity. And while doing that, we can then raise funding for conservation to actually have a big impact on tigers in the wild. So that was our justification as to why we hand raise them in the first place is so that we can give the animals a better quality of life and educate people in a greater way. But in order to do that properly, we needed to ensure that when they were young, the relationship was very strong because the older they got, the harder it was to build that bond. Um, but interestingly, you know, th their instincts would never change. So, which is why we never called them, them tame. Um, it, and you even see that with house cats, with domestic cats, that even though domestic cats are, you know, by and large domesticated, they're not really. Like they're, they're they do their own thing, don't they? Yeah. Like they, they just do their they own just thing. The show. They come to eat and yeah. then they just 
off that we always note. Said that, uh, dogs have masters and cats have slaves. And I think that that's, <laughs> that's true, whether it be a three kilo tabby or a 150 kilo Sumatran tiger. But um, yeah, so we, we would, we would place massive emphasis on the relationship building process uh, because obviously safety was paramount. Uh, and in order to have a safe working environment, we needed to have a strong bond with the cat. So we would remove the cubs at around uh, four weeks of age, and then we would spend the next sort of five to six months with them 24 hours a day. So we would stay at the zoo. Uh, we would, you know, they would require uh, a lot of food. So we would first and foremost, you know, give them milk every couple of hours. Uh, but by the time they were, you know, six, eight weeks of age, we're weaning them onto meat. Um, so they're still getting milk, but we're weaning them onto meat. So having that that imprint on them was really important um, so that they could get comfortable with us. Uh, but we also had to teach them how we needed them to be uh, for our safety. So, you know, we would never we would never tell them that they can't bite us. So which was always which when when we talked about that, people would find it fascinating, truly fascinating. Like, what do you mean? Like you you know, you, you let them bite you. Well, we do, but it's controlled. So um, you can imagine that with, with any animal, particularly a cat, if you don't allow it to utilise parts of its nature, so the, the grabbing, the, the biting, the, the clawing, that's actually how they communicate. Exactly. That's one of the ways in which they communicate. So if you tell them they can't do that, mm-hmm. they might listen for a little while, but over time something will happen and then they'll decide enough's enough. So it becomes um, like a, it's like a polarized behavior that you you and you don't want to suppress it. And you know, yeah. the whole time we're talking here, I'm linking. You know, we can see that throughout time, we've been told as humans, you can't do that, don't do this, don't do that, don't do this, don't do that, blah 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 blah. And then so it ends up being a suppression, and it becomes a void that is still hereditary to us to have the expression of, right? Yeah. So therefore, when it comes out, it comes out at a rate of knots. Mm. and you know like excessively so it's interesting like dogs bark in the neighborhood but everybody complains about them right but dogs bark so if you allow them to bark for a short period of time it's not going to be excessive right but if you constantly shut them up or or have bark collars on them etc etc then when they can bark it's like right yeah it's full and that's and we we would see that with with the cubs even at a very early age so you know, we would teach them to, you know, because when when they're playing, they're biting, they're scratching, they're kicking. Same with a domestic cat, you rough their belly, they grab your hands and then they kick you with their back legs. Like that's that's something cats do. Yeah. Um, so we would, we would allow the tigers to do that. And even when they were, you know, 120, 130, 150 kilos, we would let them do that. But the, the reason why it was safe was because for their entire existence, we'd shown them what our boundaries were not yeah. what there is. So, so the way that we would do that, we, we typically used any, you know, obviously operant conditioning is a, is a big thing in zoos. We use a lot of conditioning methods, but what we would simply do is we try to communicate in a way that they understand. So we would communicate with them the way that their mum does or their mum would. So when they're biting too hard, we would literally just give them a tap on the nose and use a short, sharp sound. So it's like a pattern interrupt. So um, the sound we would use is ah, but it would be quite loud and really abrupt and really sharp. But then 
they let go and we'd praise, tell them that they're good girl, good boy, and then we'd let them play again. And then as they're biting and scratching, the minute they bite too hard, again, tap on the nose, up. And over time, we would get to a point where we just had to say the word up and the tiger would stop or let go. Yeah. You know, so... it's conditioned response, like relative to the limbic system or the of the the animal in praise and reward or advance and retreat in that format. Yeah. And so and exactly how mum deals with them. Yeah, and in the release of they learn in the release of that pressure as opposed to the actually the application of it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and and that way that we remove most forms of punishment um obviously there's there's times and places where that was necessary obviously if if a cat was not listening to that they would then learn that if they bit really hard that they would get a, a discipline um which is again exactly what mum would do so mum would use her claws or bite we obviously don't have claws or large canines so we would have to use our our hand to give them a tap you know so they're the parts that obviously from animal training can be seen as a little bit controversial because we are using physical forms of discipline. Um, however, it's exactly how they're, they're conditioned by their parents. So exactly that. And I love the fact that you say that because you start to see that this is how that species actually conditions and actually regulates those emotional outbursts within their own species. Yeah. But yet us as a human with our um altruistic tendencies or i'd like to say our rescuing wounded components will project upon other species because uh that we shouldn't do these particular things but even in nature nature is is creating a balance there by utilizing these particular you know expressions and to tap or to slap or to ah whatever is just in a form of expression but then over time you know, all the do-gooders out there uh, have said, you know, you, you can't do this. I'd like to see them come and actually go into a, a predator's cage or a predator's uh, environment and, and say, oh, they're there, they're there, they're And, you know, this might be controversial to a few people, but relative to the species, it's not going to work. Mm. And you will get eaten and you will get scratched and you will get, you know, taken out because you're an imbalance to that that natural balance of nature natural exactly. law. And, and we and see I, this all we yeah. see this all the time even with pets you know yes. um i think yeah the you know as as you know like you've spent a lot of time with animals and around animals and, and as have i we well, humans love to humanize animals you know it's, anthropomorphize it's, yeah. and anthropomorphically yeah. project their yeah their values upon a different species that we even do it to our own species, you know, yeah, like yeah, animals yeah. Are, of dogs or cats or lions or tigers are not, uh, not relative. They're not just, they're, they do it to humans too as well. And, and, you know, I, I could walk into a room and, you know, or you're someone's home and I, you know, watch them interact with their, their dog. And within, you know, 30 seconds, I can pick up multiple behavioral issues that I know have been, caused because of the way that the people act or treat the animal and um it's it's fascinating because obviously after time you get sort of sick of seeing it because you're like well you know that can be really really easily changed if you just do these few things you know but, um but inside of that then we hold ourselves back and we won't won't speak up because we're 
fearful of actually, you know, rebuttal from that particular person or you can't tell me what to do with, but if we've spent so much time around animals and we see these particular things, we see the imbalances um, and to bring harmony or equilibrium or balance to an environment is, you know, that's our work. So it's almost like inside of us to not say, if we don't say something where we're then being inauthentic to ourselves, but I totally get what you're talking about, seeing those particular things and having to zip it just because of societal, you know, Beliefs. I think I've got to a point where at times if I'm at somebody's house and they've they're, they're bought it up, oh yeah, oh, yeah, my dog does this or my cat does this, just like you're doing coaching is like, okay, would you like help with that? Would you like my input? You know, because I think half the time people, people once they, they learn they can sort of drop the show or, or drop the ego or drop the mask a little bit and actually be vulnerable and say, yeah, I actually have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know how to, I don't know how to treat my dog. My dog just runs all over me. It's like, okay, cool. Well, you know, let me give you some steps to, to actually change that, you know, yeah. but I think, I think that's, that's where, where I've come to is, um, you know, for a very long time, people would, would obviously only see me as the tiger guy. So every conversation I had, every, uh, everywhere I went was always about talking about the cats. So it's like, well, and as I mentioned to you, when, when we f- first met uh, for a long time, that made me really uncomfortable and really um, awkward. And I didn't want to talk about it because I've always felt like, well, it's only what I do. It's not who I am. Yeah. But as I've grown older and particularly now, since, you know, I've been out of the industry for 12 months now, um, as, as I've sort of stepped into business, I realized how powerful that experience was and how it's nothing to to hide it it's a part of who i am it's what i did for so long and i built an amazing career out of it and had some incredible success um but to to not to not use that in what i'm doing in the everyday life is probably me not being authentic isn't it so it's It's, it's good to actually those experiences and um yeah, but I realized I haven't answered um, your question about. I was just, I was just going to take yeah, you back to take you back to you know like, and we could <laughs> incorporate this in here is that when I when I first met Matt is that he he spoke to me about an experience that he he had, and it started off with I learned how to read a room, I learned how to actually like place myself into a position where I could exit if I needed to, but I could also see all aspects of the environment and observe with a greater sense of awareness to be able to, um, you know, objectify any situation that may occur. And I love this because it's almost like military training in some form, but it has a a relevance to life as Mm. well as being an observer and being able to be at all states of awareness, which is advancing consciousness and to see all angles and to be able to respond without just reacting. But I'm going to let him share his story now of uh, why and, and how that come into play and why they, why he, he got to this point. Yeah, so we we would obviously safety was always you know the most important thing for us. Uh, so we had a, a two person system at, at all times. Um, so we would always work with two people with the cats. Um, so a big part of that is whenever we went out on display with them. So the exhibit 
is very large, um, about 120 meters by around 50 meters um, in length, uh, in width. So it's a very big enclosure, and we would spend you know a lot of time with the cats out there. So whenever you're in a, in an exhibit with a tiger, you need to ensure that you know where the tiger is at all times. Um, so often we would be within sort of five, 10 meters of it. Even if it was sleeping, we would just sort of stand next to it or, or, or sit down with it. But we'd often have two or three tigers on display at any given time. So whenever we, we entered an enclosure, we would need to know where all of the tigers are. So if we've got one at the bottom of the enclosure, one in the middle, one at the top, we either need to have eyes on them all or we need to, to see the path. So we trained ourselves to never turn our back to the cats to always have them in in sight so that we know that if they were to approach us um, we could see them but at the same time if they were to exhibit some of their natural instincts like stalking uh, we would be able to pick up on the fact that we are being stalked and whether and might, I think when we talk about stalking people automatically assume that they're trying to hurt you a lot of the times it's they're just playing um, but you don't want to give them the opportunity to to take it further. So we would have to always see where they were. Um, so after doing that for 17 years, for you know, 10, 12 hours a day, when I'm in public, if I go out to uh, a cafe or I'm in a room somewhere, I cannot help but position myself where I can see everything. Um, and I didn't become conscious of it until earlier this year when a friend of mine had said, you know, do you know that you always stand here where you can see the doors and I'm like no and then I realized it was actually because of all of my training so when I'm in public I, I always like to know where the exits are where the threats are and, and I feel very safe and comfortable in my life but I didn't realize how much of an impact that actually had on me and you know when, when it comes to to experiences with the cats is that I believe that I, I certainly would have been injured numerous times in serious ways if I hadn't adopted that behavioural pattern. Um, and it became subconscious because obviously I just, I created all these neural pathways that this is what I do. When I'm in this situation, this is what I do. And it became completely habitual. Um, but it, it, I believe that it, it did keep me um, very safe. But, you know, like with saying that, there was still circumstances where I, I, I you know, got injuries. Um, you know, I, I worked with, you know, 15 big cats for, for 17 years. So th there's bound to be some injuries. Um, Absolutely. And that's, that to me is, is it actually will take your experience of like having a greater sense of awareness to a heightened state is to yeah. know the contrast, right? If mm. like when I was training horses, if I didn't get bucked off or stomped on or struck out or bitten, then how would I know in, in a way how to deflect that or how to actually shift that behavior, right? So yeah. those experiences are, in my perception are beneficial in a way that it actually teaches mm. us a new layer of understanding, a new way of action, a new way of consciousness by knowing the contrast. And you know, we working, can, with, we can... working with the cats in that fashion has really helped me elevate levels, parts of my life because... Mm -hmm. The biggest thing is you can imagine just going back to that example of me being in an enclosure with three tigers and that being normal, it's really easy to imagine how stressful or potentially how stressful that could be, particularly if things don't go well. And 
it, it's yeah. almost like you you would have been in a constant state of um uh you know fight or flight just like the the animals were and so for you to have that direct experience is to really know that and we had to learn how to manage our emotions and our feelings mm-hmm. and, and it's never to it was never to um uh, eliminate them or forget about them. It was to go into them, to you know, process fear, to to process self doubt, but also to then remain calm even in the most challenging of circumstances. And I believe that if what if anything, that is one of the the most powerful things that I've taken out of my seventeen year career is under stressful situations, I am extremely calm. And because I, I've had to, I've had to train myself, so yeah, I could be in the middle of a war zone and have clear thinking, mm-hmm. because I've I've battled my own war zones at times, you know, like I, I've been involved in some stuff. So, <laughs> so when when you did have the experience of um, being, I'm not going to use the word attacked, by having the experience of uh, a big cat actually biting you uh you know what what was that like for you in that moment yeah so there's um thankfully there wasn't anything obviously overly traumatic um and I, I like that you you know obviously classified the word attack there because you know coming from from the, the media you know perspective is is whenever a person that works with big cats get injured the first thing that happens is a mauling a savage attack you know obviously we, we have uh, there's there's sort of keywords that are used to describe something, but for the to most sensation, part, to sensationalize yeah, it, yes, yeah, exactly yeah. to to mm-hmm. get those clicks and those views. Mm-hmm. But, mm-hmm. but the thing is, is most of the time, injuries occur purely because we're human. We're soft. We're squishy. We're weak. We're 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 not a, a, a tiger. Tiger ha, tigers have the ability to pull down three times their own body weight. Um, their skin is six to seven times thicker than ours you know so when a tiger scratches another tiger it typically just rips a bit of hair out maybe it will cut their skin tiger scratches a human it opens us up (laughs) you know so for me for me um you know one of the the i guess that one of the recent injuries that i'd received was a um a bite to the hand which uh turned out uh you know crushing some, some bones and severing some ligaments, which, which meant that I needed to get a uh, reconstructive surgery. Now um, that was done completely in play. So it was, uh, but because the animals are so strong uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm a human, it, it, it meant that the consequences of that was, you know, uh, an injury that required, you know, big surgery and pins and plates and bolts and, and lots of time to recover. But, that it becomes a reminder of you know actually what we're doing you know the, the the fact that at any given moment these animals have the power to cause you some serious harm and i believe that for the most part they chose not to they're just being their yeah. true nature in their species of which yeah. god mother nature whatever word you choose designed them to be and when we when we choose to enter into their their world in that format then we cannot anthropomorphize and project upon them to become human-like. We take, have to take into consideration the values of that animal. Mm. And when we choose to interact with that, having that awareness is paramount to 
like what I call, you know, like being able to flow in a relationship, but also accepting responsibility and accountability that, you know, like a big cat, a tiger is a tiger, like you just mentioned, it's not a human being. And yes. so therefore it, it cannot operate in that form. And to have the expectation for it to do that is unrealistic. So, yes. and I, you know, being a fellow animal behaviorist as well, like entering into these different domains, it's almost like we accept, accept that responsibility uh, for ourselves to, if, if something was to occur, well, you know, it's just part of the domain that and we choose that's, that's to play. Something that I would always teach um, the staff that, that I worked with was, you know, for, because for many years, um, you know, obviously I was, I was in a, a general keeping role, then I moved into a senior keeper role, then I became second in charge, and I eventually ended up managing the department for a few years. So, you know, the, the, career, the career progression was, was a lot of fun and being able to, to be a part of many different roles. And, and when I was in, in sort of the senior leadership roles, a big part of my job was to, to train, educate and mentor some of the, the newer staff. Um, obviously the skill set was highly valuable and it took many, many years to master. So we would need to implement a pretty lengthy training period, um, which would last years for staff. And, and I loved that. But one of the biggest things that I would teach was that they are being what they are. Tigers are tigers. They will behave as tigers behave. We need to be, we need to take responsibility for our actions and our decisions we need to take responsibility for our interpretation so you know when, whenever we would so one of the biggest things i would do with with new staff or, or advancing staff is whenever a tiger would come near us approach us or do something i would ask them tell me what you see here you know and if they got it right or in even then in my interpretation of what is right because i don't always get it right clearly you know so like my interpretation of, okay this is this is yes that's the right behavior based on these indicators we can predict that this would happen um but if they got it wrong then it's instead of saying well no you've got that wrong be like, okay well why why do you see it that way and then it's looking at okay well if you make a mistake a big part of that is the consequences of making a mistake are that you could get injured so is it the tiger's fault or did you make a mistake? So owning up to the errors that you make in your judgment is what makes keepers, particularly animal like trainers, the best trainers possible because they don't put any blame on the animal. And I look at this with people too and go, okay, well, if so yes, if someone stuffs up, is that because they're idiots and they don't know what they're doing? Or is it because... I have either not given them the help they need or I have not explained it properly or I haven't been committed enough to helping them. Um, but I also look at like, where, where is it? Or, or am I not in the other question I like to ask, am I not embodying this myself? Yeah. You know, I'm trying to help someone with something. Am I not embodying this myself? And, and that's something that I'd ask all the time with my staff. Um, Cause my former boss used to tell me, do what I say, not as I do. And I'm like, well, okay, you also got seriously injured and I don't like that. Um, so it's like, are you embodying what you're teaching? And in order for me to be safe with the Tigers and to train staff, I had to know what I was doing so well and I had to embody it every day in order to teach it. 
And that's something that I've definitely carried on in, into my new career is like, okay, well, where am I falling short? And, and I need to take responsibility for it so that I can thrive. I love that because we start to see that it doesn't matter what species that you are working with or associated with. And now you're stepping into the human behavior realm as like with myself for the last 17 years of that, that is the, the major component of what we call the laws of reflection or the holographic laws of, of being able to, uh, that which we judge in others is that which we haven't loved within ourselves. Mm -hmm. So taking that accountability and responsibility then uh, really does eradicate what we call shames and guilts. And, and then taking accountability and responsibility to action that which is related to your own values and not have other people expect them to have unrealistic expectation on others to achieve something or uh, be able to complete something without what I call the uh, enough data or the correct data, right? So that they can make objective decision-making processes in their journey. Does that make sense? So it, it becomes like a, a holographic or a reflective component that when we when we we get somebody in front of us that we go oh you know we, we we're in judgment of them that is okay I've got some work to do on that you know myself or if we start to blame others for something on the outside that is actually occurred that it also is a feedback mechanism to let you know that you have work to do on yourself within that. And so that's what I loved about the animals, you know, um, is that they really are a beautiful, beautiful aspect of a non-biased feedback mechanism to let you know where you're imbalanced within yourself. And uh, I'm, I'm so I've got goosebumps. I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to have another fellow animal behaviorist that totally gets that. Because we can't sit down and have a conversation with a tiger and say, you know, hang on a minute, you know, <laughs> potentially you might like to think about this or do this or do that. It's just not going to work. It's, right. it's our responsibility for us to make the observation, determine the perception, and then create the, the desirable action that is going to give the, the harmonious outcome, you know, and that's where we play uh, what I call equilibrated cause and effect where it's non-zero-sum gaming for it's a win-win situation for all that's in an interactive component with you whether it's an animal or a human so I I, I totally am awe inspired to uh, see how you actually like go forth into your journey of of working with people now because you're going to be able to offer so much wisdom, like so much wisdom from this component, from working with the cats and the animals, uh, for people to take that accountability and responsibility like for themselves. I think you've got a lot to offer. So I thank you. you and I'm excited. And it's yeah, it's such an amazing journey. And obviously, to, you know, to connect with with people such as yourself, for people who've been doing this for for such a long time, it, it inspires me and and you know obviously to have that connection with someone that also has done a very similar thing to me. And it gives me, um, you know, I've always had a lot of hope and a lot of faith in, in, in my future, but it just gives me more excitement and motivation to, to continue to make a difference and to, you know, share my story and, 
and not hide behind it, but just to to be you know, to get it out there and go, well, this is this is where I come from, and this is what I've learned, and this is how I want to help people. And um, you know, I've always seen myself as a high achiever. I've got to the top of my career in one element, and now it's like, okay, well, I get to do it again, and I get to to help people unlock their potential, and I get to help people live their life with with excitement, joy, and confidence. And you know, I'm really really excited for that. Oh, so it's so beautiful to hear that too as well, and. It is, you know, where where we we might say that we're, we, you know, we finish one career and we move on to another. Um, I like to say, no, universe has actually provided an opportunity for you to get an in-depth understanding and it's such a source of wisdom and it's a layer to then add a new layer. And there's an important part of that, of knowing like the animal the, the animal limbic component with inside of a human to be able to then take that into, you know, working with humans as a, as a human behaviorist, because ultimately you already are that. Even mm. though you're working with tigers, you still are a human behaviorist inside of that because now you have a beautiful in-depth understanding of that self-preservation and the predatory component that is deep inside of us as a human and that that is our subconscious unconscious operating system that we we all operate as and from in multiple different aspects and that to me my friend is being purely authentic like purely authentic from that space so thank you, Matt. This is a beautiful conversation and um, it was such a pleasure and a joy to have you on my podcast. So where can people who would love to actually like go on a journey with you and learn, learn more about themselves, how can they actually find you? Yep. So on uh, my social media is probably the best best way. Um, so Matthew J. Teb across Facebook, Instagram and TikTok um that that's the best way to find me at the moment perfect and of course always we will actually place his links in the show notes below and if um if you need to get in contact with him and you can't contact him, just contact us and we will pass on the details for that so thank you again and uh thank you for listening to the human source codex and i'm kelly ray and until next time i will talk to you soon